This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. And this is our third installment on our mini-series, if you will, around fandom. So if you missed the first two episodes, please go back and give them a listen so you can get all caught up. The thing is, is that the world will always try to control the creators, but the creators will always find a way because it is an expression of our love. And it's not to stop us. <laughs> Say it louder for the people in the back. I love that. And it's not going to stop us. Well, everyone, we have Avery back in the studio today. Welcome, Avery. Thanks for having me back. And I'd like to introduce Bunny. She's a fan of the Lord of the Rings, a fandom community organizer, and a fan merch creator. Oh, okay. So as a fan of Lord of the Rings, which, I mean, obviously it's a sprawling franchise and go in many different directions, what does Bunny make? Well, among other things, Bunny makes leather bracelets for Lord of the Rings, Supernatural, and some other fandoms. On these bracelets, there are these quotes and character names. You know, there's one for Killy the Dwarf. There's another one that says Salt and Burn, a.k.a. the top method for killing demons in Supernatural. Uh. It's a lot of like, if you know what it means, you get it. And if you're not a fan, then you, you wouldn't understand. Also, they run for about 5 to $10. Okay. So you're telling me that Back in the day, you could have sold your elaborate chalk drawings of the Titanic for five. No, you need to charge like 30 to 50 bucks. That was art. Classic. That was art. And people, if you don't know what I'm talking about, like I said at the top of this program, go back and listen to our previous episodes on fandom so you understand why I will never see Avery in the same light regarding Titanic. But please, please carry on. Because, yeah, I mean, I know that, you know, the last time we chatted, we learned how really nasty fandom can get. So where are you taking us next on this journey of fandom? I'm guessing it has something to do with money. (laughs) (laughs) Money makes the world go round. Yeah, so we've touched upon this idea that fans, when they go pro, they can kind of build careers out of their fandoms. And like Allie Hazelwood, the author we heard from in our last episode, who became a best-selling author after getting into the Star Wars fanfic, These are possibilities for some of these creators. But in this episode, we're going to really dive into how creators can monetize fandom by creating things that celebrate the stories they love. And we'll also look at some of the legal hurdles creators can face and what that means for fostering or stifling creativity. Here's Bunny again. When I first started, I had to invest so much money. Basically, it was an extra part-time job. And... I was working well into the night constantly. And I was traveling all over my region, doing con after con after con after con, just to get my name out there. Plus, she had to figure out the best way to make her bracelets. It was really hard. Like, leather's expensive. So um, I figured out the best way to get the most out of leather, which is, you know, like if I made bracelets, you know, I could get the most bracelets out of a piece of leather and cut it out that way and then you know the most amount of labor was stamping it's a lot of labor (laughs) 
<laughs> and then start off with a couple sets of letters and then you build from there. So yeah, it was good investments. And then I still have all my tools and everything. So um, high initial investments, but I mean, it pays off in the long run because I'm not investing basically anything right now. Bunny initially started selling merch to make money so she could visit New Zealand. Basically, so she could support her fan love of Lord of the Rings. And she's selling everything online, not totally secretly, also not totally openly, though. But if you know, you know. So most customers find her online store through other fans. So what does this mean for other fan creators? Um, so yeah, it's copyright infringement. Winton Yates is a copyright lawyer who also enjoys cosplay. Like, I build Mandalorian armor. So, like, I am in this world, right? It is all copyright infringement. <laughs> if you're doing fan fiction, if you're doing cosplay, if you are creating fan art and selling it on, like, Etsy and stuff, and you have not gotten permission from the original owner of that work. So, if it's Star Wars and you haven't talked to Disney or Lucasfilms, it is copyright infringement. The owner of that intellectual property has the exclusive rights to license out derivative works, to sell it, to dispose of it. And fan fiction is a derivative work because it is based on the original work. However, just think of any of your favorite franchises that have like a huge, massive following, huge fan base. You very rarely see people getting these companies cracking down on fan fiction and these worlds of fans because it directly benefits them because they are building more community. It's its own marketing machine and the communities that we've built around these fandoms are directly benefiting them. It would be stupid for them to just like crack down like hard asses and just be like, no, shut it down. That would leave a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And everybody would be like, you know what? I'm out. I'll find something else to enjoy. Nothing but a whisper is a shout. It's a buzz about the time. Nothing like a scandal going round. When you read the works of Lady Whistledown, it's appalling. What a shame. Enter the unofficial Bridgerton musical, written by Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear. The musical originally circulated on TikTok in 2021, and then it was released as an album. It was super popular, and it's actually pretty good, not just for hardcore Bridgerton fans either. It also won a 2022 Grammy for Best Musical Theater Album. But of course, Netflix holds the rights to Bridgerton. And this is where creativity butts heads with the law. And so that's exactly what's at stake in something like the Bridgerton musical case, right? So there you've got fans of Bridgerton who are using TikTok to basically make a creative work that expresses their love for um, the Bridgerton stories. Professor Madhavi Sunder is an associate dean at Georgetown University Law Center, and she works in copyright law. And so the fair use doctrine exists. It is to ultimately recognize that much creativity does rely on being inspired from and learning from earlier works to begin with. And fair use really means you don't have to have asked permission and you certainly don't have to pay any royalties. It's, it is free use in that sense. It's royalty-free use. And the purpose of fair use is that it allows for breathing space 
When we're talking about the creation of art, these are really hard lines to draw. Fair use applies to commentary, including news reporting. So say you're reviewing Bridgerton for a pop culture podcast and you borrow a little clip. What's also legal is using material for teaching or scholarship or parody. There are tons of parodies of well-loved franchises out there. Just one example is a totally legal Star Wars burlesque show called The Empire Strips Back. The rationale is that if you're making something with a completely new meaning, aka a transformative work, then it is allowed. So, some might argue that the unofficial Bridgerton musical took the characters and the story in a new transformed direction. And actually, when it first got big, Netflix wasn't mad. In fact, they praised the musical on social media. But when the creators Barlow and Bear scheduled a for-profit show at the Kennedy Center and even created some of their own merchandise, that's when Netflix filed a lawsuit. Court is going to look at the actual effect on the potential market or value of the original work. So is what was done negatively affecting the original work? If you're writing fanfic and you're just like posting it for people to see and you're just like, I really enjoy doing this. Same with cosplay. Like, I'm not selling these. I just make these for myself and I really enjoy making them or I make them for my kids. You're fine. But if you are economically benefiting from what you are doing, you are dipping your toes into copyright infringement and you are opening yourself up to being hit with a cease and desist letter. In terms of economic benefit, the show at the Kennedy Center reportedly sold out. And Barlow and Bear had plans for another show in London, but it got canceled after the lawsuit was filed. There are also trademark protections at play here. Netflix has their own official live event called the Bridgerton Experience. Because there are concerns about endorsement confusion and sponsorship confusion. So the argument on the trademark side is customers won't know who is really offering this product and this new work and who stands behind the product. So even though fair use allows creators the space to create, it can only protect so much. Unfortunately, right now, the dominant reading of the fair use doctrine by the Supreme Court doesn't tend to favor fan works. And this is mainly because fan works aren't considered critical of the original work. They're in fact an homage to the original. They are born out of love, not hate, for the original. And paradoxically, that hurts the creators. So in other words, a critique or a parody, that's fine. But in general, looking at how courts have treated fan works, they're usually considered derivative and therefore illegal. And the only entity that can decide what is fair use is a court, because this, again, is a defense. You can't go in saying this is fair use. You can only claim fair use if you've been hit with a cease and desist or a lawsuit has been filed against you. It is a, it's a defense, not a, not a reasoning why you can do something. So you can't say, I'm doing this because it is fair use. You can only respond by saying, what I did was fair use. This creates the legal situation fandoms live in, which is to say, kind of in between the lines. Most fan works tend to skate by, and the legal risk to fan creators like Bunny is fairly low. But when a company sends a cease and desist letter or files a lawsuit, the fan typically loses. 
In the case of the unofficial Bridgerton musical, Barlow and Bear reached a settlement with Netflix last September, and the lawsuit was dismissed. Yeah. Okay, I'm so glad we're talking about this because, you know, in this particular case, I feel like somebody shouldn't be able to sell tickets to an unlicensed musical based on another company's TV show. But then again, real work and real talent went into creating the Bridgerton musical, so shouldn't they be able to profit from it just a little bit? Well, like Winton pointed out, a lot of companies like Disney allow fandoms to get away with a lot of copyright infringement because ultimately, all of that fan love helps them make money. And there's often backlash when a company does crack down, say on a small Etsy store or something, because it's like they're punishing people for loving a movie, TV show, you know, something that that company owns. Oh, can I play devil's advocate for a sec? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, this this is why I said this is, I'm glad we're talking about this, because I can definitely see both sides of the argument here. Because, yeah, of course, if a huge corporation like Disney cracks down on somebody making these, like, fan art or fan merch, whatever it might be, yeah, I can see the argument of someone being of saying, oh, yeah, and I'm doing this for the love of it and it's helping you ultimately because it's keeping that love going and whatnot. That's lovely. But on the other side of it, I can totally understand how Disney would want to retain as much control over their incredibly lucrative IP. I mean, we're talking about franchises that are like in the billions of dollars in some cases. And so I can understand them wanting to make sure that they don't have subpar merch being passed off as official merch. So, like, where do you draw that line between someone being a fan of something and just making it, and, you know, like, putting love into what they do and just saying, oh, this is great, and just, you know, maybe making, like, you know, a small buck versus somebody who is mass-producing subpar quality goods merch and trying to sell it off as Disney? Because you can't deny the fact that aligning yourself with a huge company like Disney can be a selling point. So from a legal perspective, how is Disney supposed to parse out someone doing something for the love of it and somebody doing something just to, you know, use the Disney name and make a quick buck by selling like subpar quality goods? So I don't know. It's really interesting to me and I don't have the answer. I can see both sides of the argument. Where do you land on? So I see your point, but I would argue in the case of the Bridgerton musical, that's not exactly subpar work because they did win a Grammy and that is recognized as doing well in that industry. But on the flip side, there's this Star Wars burlesque show that might not be at that level of Grammy caliber work. But it's allowed to continue because it's a critique. And so I'm interested in looking at this idea of like when you produce a work, whether that's for your job, whether that's a hobby, it just brings up this argument of, well, what is the worth in that? I mean, fanfic is looked down on a lot because, you know, it's considered as, well, subpar and it's considered as like just kind of this fringe stuff over there on the side. But I still think you can make something that's gorgeous and fantastic and it's still illegal like it doesn't you can't take it to a judge and be like but it's wonderful but i want a grammy like it's still illegal like you you had no right to steal this work like you could you could take something and make it better than the original but it's still you taking something else still it's theft, not, it's still yeah. theft. it mm-hmm. can be beautiful theft <laughs> it be the thomas crown affair but it's still <laughs> illegal so. oh great movie so just saying 
Well, okay. Maybe with an unlicensed Disney toy, it's easier to be strict about. But with writing, and, you know, like I mentioned before, I'm in a romance writing group and, you know, I'm not specifically writing fanfic, but I know that people use their fanfic as an intro into writing, especially genre writing. And I don't think that there's, like, as defined a line between original and derivative writing. Casey, you're a writer for your job. I also write for fun. You also write for fun. Okay, cool. You're not creating everything from scratch, right? We're not just out here making our own recipes up. We're always borrowing from something else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, you know, in writing, you borrow tropes and themes. So in my own original writing, you know, of course, it's inspired by stories that I've either read or seen. And, you know, in romance, there's definitely familiar tropes that are getting reused and reinterpreted. For example, enemies to lovers. I think a lot of people would recognize that one Mm -hmm. or like brother's best friend or, you know, bad boy, good girl. Star-crossed lover. (laughs) So many lovers. (laughs) Well, there's a theme of love (laughs) among all of these. So given all of these tropes and themes that are getting borrowed, I mean, it raises the question of motivation and this idea of earning money or not. What's the debate between like what's original, what's derivative, and throughout history, haven't we written like about themes in literature, poems, movies, like how many Romeo and Juliet type stories do we have just set in different time periods? So are you saying that we should copyright themes? (laughs) Is that where this is going? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I mean, gotta earn a buck, don't (laughs) you? So obviously we're diving into some really heady waters here, some really fascinating waters, I might add. Uh, But I think now's a good time to just take a break, gather our thoughts a little bit, and we'll be back with more on this really interesting exploration of fandom. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Okay, so we are back with Avery in the studio, and we were just talking about fan creators making money or not. And Avery, you brought up tropes in writing genres. Mm-hmm. And for me, romance in particular, because that's my genre. But who better to talk about this than fanfic writers who became published romance writers? There are tropes that we all play in. We play with enemies to lovers. We play with, you know, billionaire. We play with brothers, best friends surprise pregnancy, second chance romances, all these things. That's Lauren Billings. She's one half of Christina Lauren, a romance writing duo who found each other in the Twilight fandom. And so then what it comes down to is what is the plot that you are using for that trope? Because trope is not plot. For more context on tropes, in fantasy, you have the chosen one. In action, you have the hero's journey. And in sci-fi, you have a robot gaining sentience. So basically, you can't really build a story around a concept that a whole community uses. You can't just say, I'm going to write an enemies to lovers book, period, outline, done, boom, (laughs) right? You still need the story. And so, like, we have a second chance romance book that, like, has a very specific arc. And if somebody used a second chance romance and had the same emotional beats as that, it would feel like plagiarism, Mm -hmm. right? So every genre has its rules that you follow, right? But just because two fantasy books have the calling, the rejection of the calling, the deciding to go on the journey, 
That doesn't mean that they're plagiarizing each other because what you get in fantasy is the world building. Similar to Allie Hazelwood, Christina Lauren got their start in fanfic. And then they transitioned into original fiction, and obviously they started with the Twilight fanfic first. We used that manuscript to query, and we got our agent with it. But in fact, when that book was out on submission, Christina's fanfiction, which was called The Office, she had pulled it from the website. And then I put mine back up, but she didn't. And so when we were out on submission with the book that we wrote. Somebody, which was a YA book. Which was a YA novel. Somebody had tried mm-hmm. to sell Christina's fan fiction as original, as theirs, to a publisher. Because it was mm-hmm. just attached to her pen name. It was TBY789. It wasn't Christina Hobbs, right? There was somebody from fandom at the publisher who was like, hey, this is really weird, but your fic just came across a desk here. And I want to make sure it was you because it didn't, I don't think this is you. And so we actually had to tell our agent, like, hey, we used to do this thing. Because back in, like, 2012, fan fiction was still a little, like, you know, you weren't sure if people were going to understand it or think you were weird or whatever. So we hadn't talked to our agent about it. And she's and we thought she was going to be really upset. But she was like, you're telling me you had this huge following online? And, like, <laughs> you didn't even tell me about this? This is great news. So they decided to publish Christina's Twilight fanfic, The Office. So we took a lot of time to edit the fic. We edited The Office. We, I cut it in half. I like rewrote the ending. We both really, really edited it. So we ran it through some software and it was like very different from the original fic. And our editor was like, hey, do you mind if I show this to a couple editors? We were just going to post it online for free so no one could steal it again. But then that's what ended up selling his beautiful bastard. So their writing that started off as fanfic actually became a published book and then a series. And even though it was inspired by the characters Edward and Bella from Twilight, it was considered different enough to stand on its own. Here's Christina Hobbs, Lauren's writing partner and the other half of Christina Lauren. We were talking the other day about two of our books. Um, Beautiful Bastard and Dating You, Hating You, if you just go by this synopsis, like, they have pretty similar themes. They, like, work in an office. They hate each other, trying to sabotage each other. But, like, the books are complete—that's the basically the, like, extent of the similarities. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be more than just, like, oh, she's an event planner who lives in this same city and doesn't like her boss. Like, right. that's not plagiarism. Now Christina Lauren have 29 books under their belts. And aside from the beautiful series, all of their stories are original works and not fanfic. But the distinctions between what's plagiarism and what's not can get really sticky. There's sometimes infighting between authors over genre tropes and similar plot lines. Like, for example, this lawsuit about the Omegaverse. The Omegaverse? Wait, hold on. You know what? I know you're our expert here, but I have Google right in front of me. Omegaverse. (laughs) Let's see. Okay. Omegaverse is a subgenre of speculative erotic fiction. What have you brought into my studio today, Avery? It's a subgenre of speculative erotic fiction and originally a subgenre of erotic slash fanfiction. Okay. Its premise is that it's a dominance hierarchy that exists in humans, which are divided into dominant alphas, neutral, betas, and submissive omegas. Yeah, just your regular old fanfic. But they're werewolves. So it's werewolf erotica. Proceed. Learn something new every day. (laughs) Just summarizing here, one author, Zoe Ellis, had published her book Crave to Conquer, and then another author, Addison Crane, said it was too similar to her werewolf series, Born to be Bound. And so she sued. 
And those tropes and themes there, like alpha males and imprinting, come out of this fanfic subgenre of the Omegaverse. Ultimately, Addison Kane lost her suit because, going back to Winton Yates, You cannot copyright an idea. You can only copyright the expression of an idea. Right. So you can't copyright werewolf sex. It's just out there. And, you know, these tropes are common. People borrow them. People are always sharing them within this world. Like, that's expected. So, you know, you can't copyright that. If you can't copyright werewolf sex, are we living in America? <laughs> this is what the founding fathers would have wanted. <laughs> oh my God. I really want a tambourine right now. <laughs> it seems like at the foundation of the American ideal to be able to copyright werewolf sex. Am I right? Comment below. <laughs> Comment on our page if you agree. Listeners. This is an open forum. Mm-mm-mm. Right. Well, I mean, you're kind of onto something there. Winton pointed out that copyright is a legal tenant that actually is in the Constitution. It was one of the things that the writers of the Constitution were very cognizant of in realizing that to stifle scientific and artistic innovation is to stifle the economy in in a sense, right? And human evolution and human innovation. So part of the reason that intellectual property law was developed was to keep the wheels of innovation turning as not to stifle scientific and artistic innovation. So on the one hand, being able to protect your work encourages people to keep creating. But then going back to what Madhavi told us about creativity and having space to explore, if this Omegaverse lawsuit had actually won... I mean, this is a ridiculous example, but a huge amount of werewolf erotica would be off the table. And from the point of view of writers and creators who love that genre, they'd be barred from their creative expression. So I think protecting one's intellectual property is one thing, but when it comes to sharing ideas that are observed and used by an entire literary community, well, you know, that's a whole nother level. It's like the handmade Cinderella ball gown that you're grandparent may have made you as opposed to the Disney version of the same yellow or blue dress, depending on which princess you're playing. I think we want to not necessarily move away from this kind of craft culture and the originality that is developed through stories that we all share and know. Madhavi has written a lot about how fans often learn and develop their own artistic skills and craft. We want to make sure that copyright law doesn't, one, prevent new creativity and follow-on creativity, but also doesn't prevent learning through imitation and through homage to the artists who you revere and follow. And as we learned in the first episode, creativity goes hand-in-hand with borrowing from the past. The point of culture is to share it and to tell the same stories again and again, but to maybe have different riffs on them and different perspectives on them. That fundamentally human activity is something that copyright law, at its essence, should promote and not stifle. But we are coming dangerously close to stifling that. More and more, the stories of our time are owned. And that means that people don't necessarily have the freedom to riff on them or to tell them from a different perspective, like doing a prequel or a sequel of their own making around those stories even though they are kind of the mythology and stories of our time, that they're ways that we define ourselves, they become zeitgeist. 
they become the culture and the the lexicon of our time. And yet at the same time, we can get legally into trouble by talking through them and telling new stories through them and creating new art forms through them. Basically, creativity comes from the culture that comes before us. We work within culture, not really outside of it wholly. And the law needs to recognize that. So this question about ownership and creativity is really so much bigger than fandom. And obviously, this is something that we're hearing a lot about now with all this talk about AI. I mean, like whether that's AI in art or music or writing. I mean, it's a really big issue right now. Yeah. And I think on one hand, I'm on Winton's side. Like, I'd be really upset if I published something, I put it out in the world, and then I see, you know, at the airport, the next time I go travel, there's a book that just is so similar to mine, and it feels like they copied me. But would that make you less likely to write? I don't know. Maybe. What about you? Is your own creativity tied to owning your work? It's interesting, because I think I'm in the space of right now at least creating for the sake of creating and just having that fulfillment of having it done with no real intention of putting it out in the world or making money from it because I have my full-time job that is you know being a journalist and so for me when I think about all the things that I do for fun all the stuff I do for you know creative fun and whatnot right now I'm not in the mindset of flipping that into a buck it's just me getting that joy and fulfillment of having done something, having taken something that was in my mind and putting it on paper or on a painting or in a sculpture or something. So I will cross that bridge when I get there. But right now I'm just focused on being able to create and just have fun with it and not monetize it. Well, that was beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that sentiment is something that I also share. I would also like to create for creativity's sake. And I think the problem that we're having in defining you know, what is original versus derivative and what is allowed to be created and put out into the world? What deserves this ownership label and earning money from it and getting a profit versus not? I think it all kind of comes down to this problem. Within our legal system, copyright law does not align with human behavior Mm. and all the nuances that come with that. Wow, this has really been a fascinating journey that you've taken us on (laughs) three episodes in. No, and it it could honestly be another three more, to be perfectly honest. So, Avery, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us on this extended journey into fandom. Thank you very much, Casey, for having me and allowing me to do this. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And make sure you rate and comment as well, because we always love hearing from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by... Every mile. Pew, 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 pew. Blake Odom and Julia Shue. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. And we had additional help this week from Todd Wadhams. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Joshua Christensen.